Hey, this is Mark Kassoff, and this is RPM 45. If you've ever heard this, you heard Brian Bassett, who created and played the famous riff that starts off platinum number one hit Wild Cherries, Play That Funky Music. In this episode of RPM 45, we talk with Brian about that and much more, including his time with Molly Hatchett and his band for the last two decades, Foghat. Here's our talk with Brian Bassett. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You know, I have a lot of history with the sports teams. My uh, uncle was the head groundskeeper at Three River Stadium. So I worked there during the Bradshaw, you know, glory years of the 70s. And then my great uncle was the uh, head groundskeeper at Old Forbes Field during the Clemente era. So, wow. So our family goes pretty far back into Pittsburgh sports. That's great. So were you there during the games and hanging out and helping Yeah, out I used stuff? to go to the pirate practices and had a lot of memorabilia. Every uh, family party we had. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty cold time to grow up there in Pittsburgh. Well, fun. And as far as uh, music goes, you know, I started playing guitar, you know, like a lot of musicians my age. Uh, the Ed Sullivan Show, you know, set us off on a path there, you know, watching all those great bands, the Kinks, the Stones, the Beatles. And uh, I think uh, everyone in my neighborhood got a guitar or a drum set that Christmas. <laughs> and so me and my cousins started, you know, a basement band and played parties and you know, and I continued playing, I guess I was probably in, you know, early high school. Started uh, getting serious about it around the uh, junior, senior year. Pittsburgh had a really thriving club scene. So we were able to play there five, six nights a week and actually make a living at it. So, you know, I had two or three really successful club bands. And then I uh, met with Bob Parisi, who uh, was the leader of Wild Cherry. And we reformed the band. He had an earlier version of it. And we uh, played the A clubs all through the tri-state area, which was Ohio, West Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania, of course. Okay, so Wild Cherry existed before you got into it. Right. There was a version, a club version for a couple of years. And Bob had actually broken up the band and decided to manage some restaurants down in West Virginia. And I told him, I said, if you ever get the band back together, give me a call. So you knew of Wild Cherry and the original version of Wild Cherry. then? I did. Yes. And they're not from far away, right? I mean, he's, he's from Ohio. Yeah, they were right down the road in Steubenville, Ohio. From what I understand, it was a hard rocking band. We were a hard rocking band. In fact, the uh, the lyrics to the song are quite autobiographical, really. We were a rock band playing all the clubs, doing really well. Uh, but we then uh, the clubs started turning into dance clubs. We sort of had a house gig at this club called 2001. And they installed a big lighted dance floor, and you know we had an elevated stage. But we're playing uh, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, Foghat, you know, um, rock music. Yeah, and someone actually came up to our drummer and said, "Better start playing some funky music, white boy." <laughs> <laughs> so Ronnie, that was Ronnie Bido, our drummer. He came back to the dressing room and told Rob that we all got a laugh out of it. But Rob actually started jotting down lyrics to the song right there on a napkin. You know, play that funky music, white boy. And uh, and we did. We changed our whole set. We started playing uh, KC music or Wind and Fire, David Bowie. So that was a big song. And so, did you get any pushback from your original fans, the the rockers? Not really, because everybody was sort of going with that wave in general. You know, I mean, even our fans. So you know, I mean, we still threw in a bunch of uh, rock stuff as well. You know, we played three four hours a night. 
but we slowly transformed into a dance band more really than a, than a listening rock band. And, uh, and, you know, our fans were going crazy too. I mean, uh, whenever we took a break playing the rock stuff, the dance floor would pack out and all the dance hits of the day, people would be dancing. And then we'd get up there and start playing some rock stuff and everybody go get a drink. You know? oh, <laughs> that was a sign. Yeah. So we, uh, we changed our style and uh, started writing in that vein. And uh, I think we used the Commodores really as a, as a mark for where to where to go, and and then eventually we went to Cleveland recording. We paid for the session and had played that funky music on one side, and I think it might have been uh, "I Feel Sanctified" by the Commodores on the other side. And uh, we, you know, we really just wanted to get it in the local jukeboxes and jack up our our price a couple hundred bucks, you know, on a nightly gig. But at the time we were recording, a guy from Sweet City Records, Carl Midori, was canvassing studios and liked that song in particular and took it to New York. And we got signed with uh, Epic Records. We were signed to Sweet City, who was, you know, a subsidiary of Epic. And I understand that originally it was supposed to be the B-side. It was, yeah. And a DJ, I think, in Atlanta turned it over. And and it broke mostly on black radios. And we had uh, a small but really dedicated promo staff on the phone with all the DJs. And, and it uh, took off pretty fast. And we were managed by the Balkan Brothers, who were very powerful promoters in the Cleveland area. They got us on a lot of big tours right away. So we went right from the clubs into, into touring with uh, the Average White Band, Commodores, Earth, Wind & Fire, wow. Michael Michael Jackson, and just about every major act of... This thing, you thought it was going to be a B-side, then it turned into a monster hit, and it's being played all over everywhere. And I was in radio at the time. I remember it well. It exploded. I mean, it was one of those one of those songs you put it on the air, and all of a sudden the phone started lighting up. What was it like? I mean, you guys had no idea, or did you have a feeling when you were recording it? Like, Not really. I mean, you know, we you know, like you said, we did it independently, and then when it got picked up, we were like, well, that's great, you know. But, you know, it was just like uh, you see in the movies, you know, we heard it on the radio. Radio, you know, driving to a gig and pulled over to the side of the road and got out of the car. Like, yeah, this is great. And it, and it really took off. And before you know it, you know, like I said, we went right from the clubs. You know, a funny story I always tell is our first show was uh, in Ohio with Santana in an arena. We set up our gear in front of theirs as the support act. And we were still on cords then. This is before wireless transmitters for guitars and such and we couldn't make it to the microphones (laughs) (laughs) our cords were too short (laughs) so So what'd you do well we made an emergency run to get extensions for our cords and then immediately hired a production manager (laughs) to get us up to speed for concert touring and all of a sudden like think about i mean you guys are playing clubs and now you're playing and you're playing with santana what a a mind-blowing experience it was uh it was fantastic really and uh, and the and the average white band we did quite an extensive tour with them a couple and they were just great musicians in fact the musicianship at that time was so high level it was unbelievable i mean earth wind and fire you know and and then the production values that was at the time that was the that story of the world tour that we did a couple shows on with the pyramids and the lasers and you know we played with bootsy collins and uh parliament funkadelic uh in atlanta you know with the spaceship and you know it was just unbelievable so we we tried to keep up. You know, we had confetti cannons and drop balloons on the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> so the, and the shows were great because they were, you know, R&B oriented. You know, we played funk music. Half the audience had either a cowbell or a tambourine. So when you started counting off a song, the whole crowd's like, they're already playing along with you while we played. 
the thing about that that record is it starts out with that great riff, and you are responsible for that. Am I right? Yeah, that's me. Um, the nine notes that people will remember me by <laughs> after 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never forget it. That's right. I got nine notes in there. That's good. You know, Part of music history, right? Right. It's sort of an iconic riff, I guess, but it's, um, yeah. Getting ready to talk to you today, I, I knew that you guys had a number one hit, but I didn't know this. It was also a number one hit on the R&B charts. Yes, it was. Yeah. And we got a couple Grammy nominations. We won an American Music Award, which we didn't go to the ceremony, sadly, but we lost the Grammy. But it was nice to be nominated and we played on the show, although we played right in front of the classical section. So it was a little difficult to be playing that funky music white boy and then look out and see Henry Mancini. Like, <laughs> I like your stuff better. Yeah. So I scanned the crowd. I scanned the crowd, and I, and I locked eyes with Linda Ronstadt, and you know, because she was smiling, and so I just looked at her the whole show. <laughs> Tried to ignore M- Michelle Legrand and all the all the highbrow guys, you know, and weren't too impressed. Uh, Red, is was your first time in a studio when you recorded this song? It was my personal first time in a recording studio. Yeah, actually, full on professional recording. That was my first session. So you go into your first session and you end up with a number one hit, number one for three weeks, platinum record. And I had to look it up because I'd forgotten. That means two million plus sales. Right. So what do you think about this music business when you're through with all that? Well, you know, at the time I was like, well, this this is easy. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, if, I, if that's all it takes, I guess I'll stick with it. You know, but 40 years later, still trying to get on the charts, you know. It's just one of those crazy breaks. After it had its run, is there pressure to repeat that, to follow it up with another hit record? Yeah, intense pressure. We did our second record in uh, New York, uh, CBS Studios. We recorded a song called Baby Don't You Know. Baby Don't You Know That the Honkies Got Soul. And it was a continuation of the Play That Funky Music story because everybody thought we were a black band. And when we would go into the arenas and our faces would come up on the Jumbotron, like you never heard a sound like 15,000 people going, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) They really thought you guys were black, huh? Yeah, because, you know, our picture wasn't on the record. And we broke on black radio and, um, we, you know, all we had on our cover was, you know, the lips and the cherry. You know, in fact, you know, some little kid come up to me and at a party, uh, I think it was a Isley brother party. And he goes, who are you? And I go, well, I'm the guitar player in Wild Cherry. He goes, no, you're not. They're brothers. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I read that there was some controversy about the white boy thing. It, it was, but that kind of controversy actually probably pushed the record. You know, it wasn't really an outrage because it was sort of a funny song. It was a tongue in cheek, you know, funny song. I mean, the song was true, but first of all, <laughs> so someone actually did say that to us. And then just, you know, play that funky music, white boy. I mean, it's, you know, it just became a catchphrase. Just a great line. But, you know, the fact that you guys were white guys means to me that you could get away with saying play that funky music, white boy. Yeah, because uh, we're, well, we are them. It's always okay to poke at yourself. Yeah, self-deprecating humor. It's, you know, my favorite kind. You know, all in good fun. And the music itself is fun. So it wasn't any kind of deep statement other than really just uh, commenting on the truth. So we were in New York, and like you said, the pressure to record uh, another, it was a continuation of the story telling about you know our reaction and the crowd's reaction to us. But it was like, baby, don't you know that the honkies got soul? But unfortunately, the, the chorus was black. No, white, right. My, what a sight. Now, that one got controversial. Things sunk like an anchor, you know. And it's tough for a band, a brand, brand new band, to have their biggest hit first. I think if that would have came along as our third or fourth single, our career would have had a whole different path. You know, we just sort of declined. 
But, you know, we got five or six good years touring with some of the best bands in the world. And I left after the third album. I wanted to go back to playing rock music. I was in the Night Ranger in Kansas and, you know, sticks more progressive bands. And I started a band uh, in Cleveland and then relocated back to Pittsburgh and and started a band in the Pittsburgh area, which was did really well. Played in several other bands. I, I played in uh, the band of Silencers, which had a CBS contract. And then I moved to Florida um, and left the Pittsburgh scene. Looking to join a band, I figured Florida, you know, vacation mecca. There's got to be a great club scene down here. There wasn't, you know, when I moved to uh, particularly Daytona area. There's uh, a lot of solo acts playing Jimmy Buffett songs and uh. and small clubs, but very little band activity. So uh, I actually took a job. I worked at Al's TV Radio Shack for a while. I was a TV repairman. Wow. <laughs> and sales, sales at a Radio Shack. And, uh, you know, then continually looked around for a band to join. And I eventually uh, met a band called the Midnight Creepers. They were doing a benefit concert, and they were great. It was a big band, um, horns, two keyboards, two guitars, bass drums, fronted by my friend Mark Hodson, a virtuoso harmonica player, and also Noble Thin Man Watts, who was an older black saxophonist. So I was thrilled. I went back you know, to see a big band and uh, playing blues, which I loved. And uh, the band leader was the bass player, Bob Greenlee, who was just at the time putting together a recording studio and was intent on starting a blues label. So he invited me to uh, his place over in Sanford, Florida, and he had a big plantation house, you know, it was very old, and had a side building with an apartment upstairs, which he was doing recording in. I think it was a 16-track, you know, reel-to-reel, and he called it King Snake Studios and King Snake Records. That was the, the business he was putting together. I just got to be friends with this guy, started hanging out with him, and Bob then converted the whole building, you know, gutted it. We turned it into, a, at the time, a pretty uh, first-class 24-track studio. You know, we were hoping to be a production house where we would produce records and then move them up maybe to a bigger record company, you know, for distribution and promotion. You know, and whatever we couldn't sign, we would do ourselves on Kingsnake Records. So Kingsnake was a label and you guys put out records. We did put out records over probably over 75 to 100. And mainly blues? Mainly blues. Bob was very interested in Southeastern blues, which, you know, was we termed swamp blues. You go, you go like from Wild Cherry, which is super mass appeal, 2 million records sold. But this is very niche stuff. Very much so. And and I, what really drew me to it was, and that, in those days, this is way before internet, you know, anything of that nature, you had to have a record deal to have a record out in the world. I mean, you needed the promotion, distribution, manufacturing. And I was frustrated in Pittsburgh. I mean, one of the reasons I just left Pittsburgh was I was sort of tired of having a great band and having no success. We just got turned on by every record label and it was frustrating. So I moved south and like I said, I, I didn't play for a while until I met the Creepers, and I got back into it playing blues. And then we started making records. I mean, just to be able to you know write, record, produce records, and then have Bob, who was actually a fairly wealthy individual, be able to uh, do an independent record thing. I mean, we were making at one point 10, 12 records a year. And so to have that creativity and productivity was a salve for my soul. You know, sure. I was producing music. We weren't selling millions of records, but we were selling thousands. And they got out there to the world and provided uh, our bands and our artists with product to sell. You know, and that was our business model. We were just a small independent 
uh, Roots label. So you found yourself in a nice niche there and you obviously were able to enjoy what you were doing and indulge that and learn a lot about recording and all that stuff at the same time. Exactly. You know, I was learning my whole new skill being an engineer. So at some point, though, you end up in Fawcett. Yeah. <laughs> How does that happen? I had a quartet at this time called Blue House. And we played a club over in Orlando on one of our Thursday nights. Uh, Pat Travers, the great rock guitar player, who was a friend of our bass players and, uh, and a friend of mine, brought Lonesome Dave, who had just returned from England and moved to Orlando, to see us. Because he was a blues aficionado. I mean, Dave was a collector of blues records, 78s, knew everything about American blues. He was like a historian, really. Now, I should explain to, to listeners that Lonesome Dave was the original lead singer of Foghat. That's right. Uh, he was the, the lead singer and principal songwriter, along with Rod Price, of all the big Foghat hits. Dave had taken a break and, I guess, uh, moved to uh, England for a while. Dave knew every song and asked if he could sit in with us, and which we said, of course, you know. But me and Dave hit it right off. And before you know it, you know, we were talking to each other on the phone and he wanted to go, get back into playing. So what, what, what happened first is um, Dave said, well, I want to just do some gigs. So we did sort of a blues review around Florida for about a year and maybe two. At a certain point, Dave said, well, I want to start traveling around again, touring. Would you be my band? And uh, I said, of course. And so that's that's how I got in. So it was actually called Lonesome Dave's Foghat. There was a doling Foghat situation there for a while because Roger had still been playing all along. How um, weird was that to have two Foghats going around the country? Yeah, it was, it was weird, you know, and I didn't know. I hadn't met Roger at that point, so I didn't know him. But it was odd, yeah. It was, you know, booking agencies and, you know, legal stuff. And, uh, and that went on for four years. I mean, for me, I was ecstatic. I'm playing with Lonesome Dave, and we toured all over the country. I mean, it was I was... It was exciting for me to be back on the national tour and playing bigger venues again. We did that for four years, and then Roger and Dave talked in 1992. The Foghat reformed. Dave was upset to have to let us go. Well, I was Dave. I'm a Foghat fan, and you know, and at that time, bands like Aerosmith were having you know second resurgences into the marketplace, and so I said, oh, you know, you got my blessing, and you know, let's go back to the studio. Dave comes back to Foghat. There's two Foghats, and then the original guys come back together. So what happened to me, I mean, I, I actually, we had just finished a European tour with Molly Hatchet. One of the last shows we did before we broke up, they said, we, we heard you're losing your gig with Foghat. And I said, yes. They said, well, come on over. Danny Joe wants to talk to you in his bus. So I went over there, and they said, well, when you're done, you, you want to play with us? And I was like, yeah, sure, you know, absolutely. <laughs> So I basically got off Dave's bus and got on to the Molly Hatchet bus. I learned the parts, my parts, all the way on the way up to uh, Maine was our first show. But funny enough, my, my first Molly Hatchet show was with the reformed fog hat. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so how weird is that? So I walk off the Molly Hatchet bus and go into the arena, and I go into the fog hat dressing room, and Roger's in there on his practice pads playing, and I, I looked at him and he goes, wrong dressing room, mate. <laughs> I can hear him saying that. I'm in the other band now. So that was that's a funny story. We laugh about it all the time. You know, and that's what I that's how I met Roger. I gotta admit, I don't know that much about Molly Hatchet. I know flirting with disaster, that's what I know about Molly Hatchet. But it's a southern rock band, right? I mean it's gotta be it's very different from what you'd been doing. Yeah, Southern Rock, um yeah, it was definitely different. It was pretty hard rock, though, I must admit. You know, some Southern rock is a little bit more country-oriented. We were more rock-oriented. And the music was very challenging because it was a lot of harmony guitar 
which I sort of related to, not so much because it was Southern rock, but from my days of trying to learn Kansas music and cover bands. We played Allman Brothers stuff and bands that were doing guitar harmonies. So it was something I was interested in. And it's a big part of the Molly Hatchet's music is that guitar harmony and, you know, not unlike uh, Skinner, you know, Freebird kind of. And once again, I, you know, got to continue to stay on the national circuit. Molly Hatchet was quite popular in Europe, so we did almost every year, two or three months touring Europe. So it was, you know, from a touring standpoint and playing, we did a lot of shows and traveled all over, all over the world. And uh, I was with them for seven years at that point. But then at some point, you're back? Back to Foghat, yeah. It was seven years. Dave got ill, you know, for a while. So Yeah. And they took some time off. And uh, when he decided to uh, come back to tour, Dave, after his um, cancer treatments, and he was feeling good enough to go back on the road, he called me on the phone. I was—I remember I was in Green Bay, Wisconsin, doing a Molly Hatchet show. And he goes, he goes I feel like doing a bit of playing. And um, I go, well, great. You want me to come over to the house? I'll be home on you know Sunday or whatever. I'll come over. And he goes, well, no, I want to go back out on tour, and I want you to come with me. And I, I go, well, I'll have to quit my band. He goes, okay, cool. I'll have my call you with plane tickets to New York, and I'll see, and I'll see you on Thursday in New York. Oh, so my God. I actually you know, had a meeting that night with, uh, with Bob, leader of uh, Molly Hatch, and I said I got an offer that I really can't refuse to go back and play with Dave. And he was a little upset, but took it well. And for a couple months, I played in both bands. I, you know, I Wow. Do a Foghat show and then to go do a Hatchet show and then until the new guy was ready to go. And that was probably 99. Now you that. replaced two in, in Foghat. Rod, Rod Price. I understood. He didn't like the lifestyle, right? He didn't really like touring that much, no. And what about you? I mean, you've done a ton of touring, it sounds like, in your lifetime. You I have, yeah. Like I mean, it. Yeah, I do. You know, I mean, if you're a musician, in my mind, you know, if you don't like traveling, pick another line of work. You know? How do you keep going with relationships and family and all that it, stuff? It was it was difficult, especially when I was in Molly Hatchet. I mean, I was single for all the Wild Cherry period and everything. So it's great life for a single person, you know, seeing the world for the first time and traveling and tour buses are cool and you see every nook and cranny of the States and that was great. But I was got married um, when I was with Dave and had my first daughter. So that was difficult. And I was with Molly Hatchet at a lot of that time on a tour bus for maybe six weeks at a time. Wow. So it was difficult. That is tough. But, you know, it comes with the territory. And, you know, when I'm home, I'm home a lot. You know, I mean, I get a couple straight weeks of doing nothing and being home. And then you go out for weeks. But uh, for the last many years now, I mean, I've been in Foghat now for 20 plus years straight since 2000. We fly a lot now. It's almost like a business trip now. You know, you go out on a Thursday and come home on a Saturday or Sunday, fly. So, you know, we take it a little easier on ourselves from a traveling standpoint. So you've done a ton of stuff in music. I mean, everything from Wild Cherry to the blues to Southern Rock to, you know, Fog Hat. And I also read that you are a professor as well. I did, yeah. I taught, uh, I guess, three or four years at the community college. They had a, a brand new program, sort of like School of Rock, you know. I was like... <laughs> I, I taught I taught live performance and stagecraft, and then I did it for several semesters. And the year after I left, they had me in for master classes, which I, which was cool, you know. Yeah. And I would I would come in and and do uh, a couple talks in the uh, auditorium as opposed to daily classes. Not all of them were musically oriented. Some of them some of them were there for the technical expertise of learning to run a pro pro tool system or you know engineering making techniques or. Or some of them are there for uh, music business. Some are there for production, you know, lights and sound. 
But there was a lot of musicians there, too, who were really great. So I just wanted to let them know that here's what I did with my career, and so it's not as far away as you think. I wasn't afraid to tell people that they were great, and I was also not afraid to subtly hint that maybe, you know, this is not my, maybe for you for your whole life. Ah, that's tough. So it's tough, you know, so it was an evaluation thing, but I mean, it was just great to work with young people. I I really enjoyed it. And um, I'm sure you were nicer than Simon Cowell. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, no, there was no, um, none of that. Absolutely. Well, listen, thank you for stopping by, uh, letting me uh, talk to you, taking the time with me. Okay, good talking to you, man. Thank you. you. Thanks to Brian Bassett. Roger Earl from Foghead told me he's a great guy, and he certainly is. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of RPM 45.